For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Which our more presentable parts do not require, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. All right, thank you, Pastor Mike. We are going to use that as one of our passages this morning. Again, uh, we've spent time praying. We're to be a praying people, so we'll take one more moment here, this time in silent prayer. And would you take a moment to ask God to use his word to address our hearts collectively as a church? And then I will come back and pray with us. So let's go to the Lord in silent prayer now. Lord, we pray that as we gather around your word, it would be like bread that you feed us with this morning, uh, where encouragement is needed, please encourage us, and then where correction is needed, please correct us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Last week, we began a short series that is entitled, What is the Local Church?, Uh, If you're new with us, I want you to know that ordinarily we walk through books of the Bible, uh, but for this time in our church life, it seems wise to take a moment to study this doctrine of the local church, so we are studying various passages. Uh, We covered why we're studying this doctrine of the local church, and four reasons that we mentioned last week. Number one is that over the past few years, a number have joined our church, so it would be right for us to all be facing the same direction and having the same understanding of the church. Uh, Second, when COVID hit, this new thing called online church really took off, where many churches are actually promoting an online uh, congregation. And the question is, is that biblical? Uh, There's also just the general practice of a church. What should a church be doing? Is it meant to be a kind of church that serves up a drive-through mentality where Sunday morning, you pop in, and right after the service, you pop out, you got what you wanted, and you're on your way? Uh, Also, there are churches that believe the Word of God as being true from cover to cover, and then there are other churches that choose or pick and select certain passages of scripture. So is that what a local church is? So we're studying this. Uh, Next week, I believe, will be our last week. Uh, 
To help us study this question out, we took a definition from Jonathan Lehman, who's a scholar on the local church, and we used his definition kind of in one hand over here, but then studied the Bible like, does, does that, is that capturing what the Bible teaches? So we're using this definition to guide us in our study here. He says this, a local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. So we've divided that up into four sections. Um, we're looking at it as a group of Christians. We looked at that last week, who regularly gather. And then there's this aspect of membership and then there's this aspect of gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. Now briefly, to just touch on what we covered last week, we said a church is a group of Christians. That certainly has to be our identity as a local church. You must be a Christian to be part of the local church. And you might be here this morning, maybe as a visitor, or maybe you're a, as a regular attendee, and you've been asking yourself for some time, what is a Christian. How do I actually become a Christian? Well, let me just answer that for you briefly. Acts 16:31, Paul said to a man, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And you say, but why, why do I have to believe in Jesus in order to be a Christian? Well, the Bible clearly tells us that all of us have sinned against God and because we have sinned against God, we have violated his character, we deserve God's judgment in light of our sin. There's one man who never sinned, and that was Jesus. He was the only human who never said a foul word, never harbored nor retaliated in bitterness. He never dwelt on an immoral thought, which means that Jesus is the only human who can stand before God and have an eternal relationship with him. But on top of that, the Bible tells us in Galatians 2, verse 20, that Jesus, the Son of God, loved me and gave himself up for me. Christ loved us and he gave himself up for us, meaning that Christ willingly took the punishment that we deserved for our sins and he took it upon himself. He gave himself up and took that punishment upon himself and also offered his life of obedience to the Father as a gift to us. And so when the Bible says, believe on Jesus, we're believing on the one, the Son of God who came from heaven, lived a human life, who was perfectly innocent, and says, okay, I'm willing to take the punishment for your sins. I'm willing to forgive you of your sins. And by faith, you can have my life of obedience as a gift to you. And so that's what a Christian is. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, right now I encourage you to believe that truth, to become a Christian even while you're sitting in this room. Right now you can become a Christian. Christians are those who have believed this truth and received the gift of our sins being forgiven through Jesus and his righteousness being given to us. So we covered that last week as an essential component for being part of the church, the local church. Second, we moved into a necessary action. 
how does a church act? And so here's a function that we ought to see within the local church is that we gather regularly together and we went to different passages throughout the scripture. We've seen that God has always regularly gathered his people, whether it was Old Testament Israel, they would gather at the temple to hear the word teached or taught or preached. They would gather together for feasts. Um, God gathered them together in the synagogues where they would carry out the ministry that he had given to them. God gathers his people in the church as well. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, when you come together, and he says it five times, like come together, when you come together. And then of course, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, which we looked at last week where it says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the church, the local church, is a gathering body, physically gathered together. And I think graciously, we were pushing back and correcting the thought that online church is not online church. It's, it's a service for people who can be home or need to be home, but it is no substitute for the gathered church. There's no such thing as online church because the church physically gathers. So that's review if you're joining us this morning um, and missed last week. Today we are moving into this third component, if you will. We covered two last week. Here's a third. And that is on this, this component of membership. Again, the definition of a local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather together in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. Now, the younger you are, the more likely you are to think that membership is not a biblical practice. I mean, can't we just show up at services, kind of participate in them as we please, and then go home? And after all, isn't that what a lot of churches do for us? They offer a service, I can come in, I can sit down, and I can leave. Is there a biblical argument for local church membership where you commit yourself to the body, the body knows that you make a commitment to it, you commit yourself to following the authority that God has given to the pastor elders in the church? Is there that kind of argument that is given in Scripture? And yes, there is. And so we're going to work through that this morning with three points. Here are the three points of the sermon this morning. Number one is a picture that describes membership. Number two, practices that require membership. And then number three are objections and applications for membership. Okay, so let's first look at a picture that describes membership within the local body of Christ. There are several pictures in the Bible that describe a church. You know, Jesus talked about the church in terms of a flock, and out of that picture, you think, okay, here we are as sheep, and then there is this shepherd, and God protects us. The, the picture gives us something to sort of wrap our arms around that defines the church. Uh, we see elsewhere in the scripture that the church is a bride. 
And so in that picture, you know that Christ is the groom and Christ loves the bride. And there's this union that takes place. That, those kinds of pictures help us understand what church life is like. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there is the picture that Paul uses of a body. And the way that Paul unpacks this picture of a body to describe life in the local church, has a, it has a logical progression. He doesn't start with the body. He starts in verse 4 by saying, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. So I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And you see that word that he's using there. There's a variety there. There's a lot going on here in the church here. Many people have different gifts. And we know that when God saves a person, there is a gift that he develops. And it's good for us to be asking the question, what gift has God given to me to serve the local church? Paul continues on through the passage and he says that there are things like tongues and prophecies and healings and miracles. And by the way, this paragraph here is not an exhaustive list of gifts in the church. You can go to 1 Peter chapter 4 to see another list of gifts. You can go to Romans chapter 12 to see another list of gifts there. And he says that these gifts are given to each person by the Spirit. So down in verse 11, he says, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he will. So he's looking at this church in Corinth and he says, people in the church have these gifts. Okay, thank you, Paul, for that teaching. But now what he does is in order to help us see the connectedness of the members in that church with their gifts, he gives us an illustration, and that's this picture here of the body. So in verse 12, he goes on to say, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Okay, so he's talked about this church here that has these gifts, and he wants them to function well with one another. And as you've read or read 1 Corinthians, you know there's all kinds of problems in that church. I mean, it is a, a rough church there, and Paul is writing to say, let's work out some of these problems, and one of these problems is the way that you relate to one another with your giftings. So you each have gifts. You're each now needing to see yourself a certain way. How should we see ourselves? And he uses this picture of the body, the human body. Now, if you're perceptive here, you're saying, wait a second, Nate. I see something in verse 12 that you seem to be glossing over. And that is that Paul is using the picture of the body not in a local church way, but in a universal church way. Look what he says here. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Verse 13, for in one spirit 
we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Paul is describing the universal body of Christ. All Christians everywhere across the world, whether you're in the West or the East, if you have been saved, if you've been um, brought into a relationship with God through Jesus, it says that we were baptized or immersed or plunged into this body now. And we're all one body here. Yet Paul takes this universal picture of the body and he doesn't leave it there as some sort of big entity that you sort of relate to from a distance. He takes this universal picture of the body and says, this universal picture is supposed to be manifested on a local level here. The universal body is supposed to be manifested in the local church. And that's where you start to see this picture of intricate membership with one another. There's this connectedness with one another. Yes, the universal body is there, but he's saying that universal body ought to be obvious, ought to be seen in the local body. So verse 21, he moves on to say, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. And he's speaking to people in Corinth who are struggling with one another. So understand the context. He's not just talking about the Corinthians and how they relate to the church at Ephesus and how they relate to the church at Colossae. He's saying, yes, you're part of the universal body of Christ, but that ought to be visible in your local body. And here, you need to know that you ought to relate one another. In fact, the eye cannot say, I have no need of you. The head can't say to the feet, I have no need of you. So let's just develop this picture a little bit more. Think about the activity of a physical body for a moment. You're outside, you're walking along, and it's not your fault. The sidewalk jumped up and grabbed your toe and you went down and now you have a gash on your knee. Your eye sees the gash on the knee. The eye can't say to the knee, knee, I have no need of you today. If the eye doesn't have the knee, he's going to have a hard time getting his own eyeballs around town. The eye needs the knee to move one direction or another. So the eye looks at the knee and the eye helps the knee. The eye sends a signal to the brain. The brain now sends a signal back down to the feet and tells the feet, start walking home, carry the knee home. Now the feet can't say to the brain, brain, I have no need of you. If the feet didn't have the brain, there would be no orderly walking, no specific direction, no logic, no location to go to. So the brain and the feet are working together to get home for the sake of the knee. And when the body gets home, there's the arms moving, extending, so that the hands can reach into the medicine cabinet and get the wipes out and the band-aids. The arm needs the hand with the fingers attached to it to grab those wipes and those band-aids, and the hand needs the arms to extend the hand up to the medicine cabinet in order to reach it. And eventually, the knee is saying, man, 
I needed the brain, I needed the eye, I needed the feet, I needed the arms, I needed the hand, I needed the fingers so that those wipes can brush off the blood and get the dirt out of me and so that the band-aids can be applied to me. Nobody in the body can say, I have no need of you. And Paul's point is that we are all members of this great big body of Christ, yet our function as members, this pictorial scene that we're seeing, is to be carried out in the life of the local church where we give help and encouragement and edify and protect one another. To use Bonhoeffer's line, it's life together. We're integrated together. That's what life should be in a local church. So you think about this from a big picture. God has so saved us and designed us as Christians that we would be connected together with one another, and this connectivity results in benefiting others and being benefited by others, and it happens in the church. Now, two objections, and I'm not talking about the objections later on, just two objections right now. Some might say, I don't need the church. I'm a maverick, I'm a loner, I'm just, I'm okay on my own. And the second objection is this, The church just isn't very thoughtful of me. I've tried it, but no one ministers to me. The church has failed me. Therefore, I don't see the point of being part of a local church any longer. Now, just ask yourself for one moment. I think we've all sort of felt that, even in ourselves. Where is the focus of someone who reasons like that? It's purely on themselves. You truly might be a loner, and the church will fail you at times by not being very thoughtful of you. However, I need to stop the chain reaction of thoughtlessness. Instead of me joining the group of people who are not using their gifts for the church, I need to join the group of those who are saying, this is how God has saved me and wired me. It's about me obeying the Lord and using the gifts that he has given So here Paul is saying that as every person in the church is at Corinth, that local body of believers, everybody is needed. Well, every member of the church body is important and needed. Your life plugged into the body of the local church is described here in 1 Corinthians 12, and we are connected to one another. That's a picture of membership. So here's what I want you to see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want you to see this picture that is presented. It's this picture of connectivity, helping and being helped by one another. Point number two. Let's talk about practices that require church membership. I may have said teachings earlier. I'm moving that to practices that require church membership. We just saw the image But some might ask the question, is there an actual passage in the Bible that says, you shall go to a church, they will require membership, you must fill out a membership application, go through the formal steps of meeting with a pastor, stand before a congregation, share your testimony. They all, in one voice, hopefully say, I, with nobody opposing, and voila, I am a member. Is there any passage in the Bible that says, that must be done and followed Robert's Rules of Orders? Uh, The answer is no. That process is not specifically described. And some people get tired or maybe a little confused about the red tape that has to be walked through. 
The process is not specifically described, so there's flexibility with that, but there are teachings that require membership. So let me give you three passages that require church membership. The first is describing the relationship that exists between pastors and congregation. Pastors and congregation. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. The text says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. In this text here, you see a personal relationship that is being carried out between leaders, which are the elders or pastors within the church, and folks who are the congregation, the body. These elders obviously know who their flock is. There is a clear awareness of whom they are watching and for whom they are accountable to. You see similar language in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, where Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witnessing or a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Here's Peter's command. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Now notice, who are the shepherds supposed to shepherd? It's the flock that is among them, not the flock that is you know, in the next county. It's the flock that is gathered to them. And you might say, but I don't see the need for formal membership at this point. Again, there's no chapter or verse that says, here are the steps that you have to take, but the principle of membership is here. Being purposefully joined to a local church where pastors know you and know that you are part of their flock and you know that those pastors are your leadership. This is what membership communicates. Like, I am connected to this group of pastors at this church. And sadly, many churches have sort of taken this truth and just chucked it out the window saying, pastors really aren't there to shepherd the people. Pastors are simply there to give them a Sunday morning blurb, let them come in and let them go out. So our Western world is very individualistic, very much, I'm going to do it my way. And the church says, hey, no problem. Pastors, you know, authority. Authority's bad. Why should pastors have authority? They should just be really good speakers to get up and give a good Sunday morning sermon. And all you need to do is show up at that place and you're considered part of this gathering. But that's not the pastoral responsibility biblically, and I think you want more from your pastors. You want that shepherding to occur. There's an accountability relationship that exists between the pastors and the flock, one of loving leadership and another of joyful obedience, one in which the shepherds specifically know these are the people whom I am shepherding. But let's press it just a little further. How are the elders supposed to know whom they are accountable for unless the individuals in that flock say, yes, I am submitting myself to the leadership of the pastors of this church. Now think about it from an elder's perspective. An elder wants to be biblical, as biblical as possible in his leadership. He wants to watch out for people's souls and shepherd the flock, not just have a weekend drive-through for people to come and attend and leave. 
Someone attends the church but says, I don't want to be a member of this flock because I'm not here to follow leadership. I'm here to get what I want, and if I disagree with the leaders, I'll either fly the coop or just move to the sidelines of the church until that issue's gone. Is that a biblical church? Or somebody says, the only reason I'm there is because my spouse is there. So once a month I'll show up, or twice a month I'll show up. Are elders accountable to that person who says, I'm only there because my spouse is there, but have never, they have never made a commitment to this local body and said, yes, I, ex- I accept the leadership of the pastors in my life? Membership is a way of saying, I agree with this principle that is taught in the Bible that there are pastors who are given to the church, Ephesians chapter 4. God uses pastors to shepherd the flock, and I'm willing to place myself under their leadership. So these passages on the relationship that exists between flock and pastor, they teach the importance of membership. That's one teaching. There's a second teaching, and that is the practice of church membership, and church discipline. Matthew chapter 18. Uh, Go ahead and take your Bible and turn there. I didn't put that up on the screen for you this morning. Matthew chapter 18. Here we see Jesus talking and explaining how we're supposed to handle sin in the church. Matthew chapter 18. We'll just walk through this. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So what's Jesus describing? Uh, a couple, few steps here. There's a brother who is in unrepentant sin. And within the context of that group of people, he says, well, you as an individual should go and tell him his fault. And if he listens and repents, great. That's the best place for him to be. He's repented. He's turned. Life can go on. But if he doesn't, then there's step two. You should take one or two others with you one or two other brothers that know this person. Um, You go to them and you say, this hasn't been solved. Let's talk through what happened. And the two or three that are gathered there say, nope, this is sin. You need to repent of that. If he refuses to listen there, step three is Jesus says, tell it to the church. Now, You can say I'm going to be part of the universal body of Christ, but this right here is a practice that can't happen within the context of the universal body of Christ. You can't go around and tell this to every Christian that you know. Jesus is looking at those who have gathered together, those who would know this person, those who are walking with him. This is the church family. And so the church family would rightly respond by praying for him and If they have a personal relationship, they can come alongside of him and love and reiterate the same message of repentance. But again, if he refuses to listen at that point, Jesus says, 
let the church now see him as a tax collector or a Gentile. First century, it was clear that the tax collectors and Gentiles were not following Jesus. They weren't the Christians. So they were the non-Christians. So this process happens and a group of people are saying, okay, I've seen this unfold here. We've walked with this individual. We've called him to repentance, but he won't repent. So now he's to be seen as a non-Christian. You relate to him as a non-Christian. And then Jesus concludes by saying, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And the point there is that Jesus is saying, we agree with heaven. If a person is walking in a way that is not repentant of sin, they're not walking as a Christ follower. So we're aiming to agree with God on who this person is here. Now, can this happen without a local church? Can this happen when there haven't been a group of people who have said, yes, I'm part of this local body. I am committed to that brother and that sister walking together, following the Lord. And if we see somebody who doesn't just sin, we all sin. But if we see somebody who's like, forget that, I am going to walk in sin, then you have to have this group of people around him who say, here's the lasso, we're pulling you back. And so there is this togetherness, there is this teaching here that requires a yes we're in yes i'm committed yes i'm part of this church body and a church body cannot do this and that's why many churches don't do this if they don't require membership there's no commitment to one another to practice this the same practice that comes up in first corinthians and second corinthians you can study that out for yourself i do want to read just one text from second corinthians chapter 2 where paul addresses church discipline here he says now if anyone has caused pain he has caused it not to me but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you for such a one this punishment by the majority is enough so you should turn rather to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow Okay, so a church discipline case just happened. Two thoughts. Number one, Paul's talking to the local church there in Corinth. And number two, he says that a majority of them has spoken on this issue. And the question is, how will one know if you have a majority unless you know who and how many members are in the church? You have to have a defined boundary to know if I have a majority or not. And so the biblical practice of church membership or church discipline requires church membership. All right, a third teaching that requires church membership is simply relationships in the church. And I won't spend much time on this, but 1 Timothy chapter 5, you don't need to turn there. Paul instructs the church in ways of how to care for widows, how to compensate elders, and how to bring charges against elders. Those are the three things that he wants to address in there. Again, how do these things take place in a local church unless there is meaningful membership where folks have publicly identified themselves as Christians and then committed themselves as members to that local church where these commands are carried out? How are we going to know who our widows are if they haven't said we're part of this? How are elders going to receive a charge unless people have said, yes, I'm part of that church and there's something wrong that I think you're teaching here? So there's these, these aspects of relationships in the church that you see throughout Scripture that would require a church membership. Okay, third, 
And finally, objections and answers and application for membership. Objections, answers, and application for membership. Number one is this. I'm fearful. Some of you may have been part of a church, possibly even a cult in the past, where membership resulted in deep hurts. For example, a leader at the top of that cult could have held all the power and they used it arrogantly and abusively. Scandals break out, people's lives were damaged, and the bad people seem to get away without any consequences. And you're like, I am not going to set foot or participate in any kind of entity that calls for membership because I'm fearful of getting hurt. Okay, that stuff happens. And some of you have been part of churches that had poor leadership, they were unhealthy from the top down, and it resulted in a lot of pain. But realize what happened. A bad person or persons took a good practice, that is church discipline, and they corrupted it. And that has been a pattern in sinful, fallen humanity since the beginning of time. We take God's good things and we use them selfishly and wrongfully. A husband uses his strength. Strength is a good thing. Being a husband is a good thing. But he can use it to abuse his wife in marriage. Marriage isn't wrong now. It simply needs to be employed in the way God created it. So we take those things that have been corrupted by sin and corrupted by others, and instead of tossing them aside, we return God's principles and practices to their rightful, God-honoring position. We walk back the corrupt membership that has taken place to its rightful place of biblical membership. We need to walk it back away from those who have used it for abuse and corruption to the place of order and structure and beauty in the midst of God's people because whatever God prescribes is beautiful. And when we listen to his prescriptions for our lives together, that results in good, beautiful things. And so we look at membership and we say, it's God's thing, it's not the world's. So even if something hard or hurtful or painful happened in the past, we as Christians, by faith, aim to use it properly going in the future. Second, someone might say, I don't need church membership because I can worship God on my own. I don't need that because I can do it on my own. And it's true that you can worship God on your own, but... Aspects of a relationship with God can only be found by being part of a local church that has regular physical gatherings, teaching hours, pastors and deacons, and a host of people whom God has given gifts to for the edification or building up of you, the body. And so membership is like a trellis and your life is like a vine. And God gives this membership to the local church, and this membership has all of these benefits to it with members who are committed to one another, and here is your life that is right in the middle of all of that, and God causes the vine, your life, to flourish 
when you are benefiting from his plans and practices within the local church. And you just think about how we benefit by being connected together. We benefit by singing with and one an- to one another. Membership in a local church encourages you to use your gifts and not sit on them. Membership in a local church encourages humility by allowing others to use their gifts in your life. Membership in a local church says, I'm going to, I'm going to accept that God has a pattern for the church and offices in the church pastors and deacons, pastors to lead, deacons to serve, and I'm going to benefit from that. Membership in a local church is the place where you join hands with your brothers and sisters, and when you partake of the Lord's Supper and you say, yes, together, we are together in claiming that Christ is our Savior. It's the group of people whom you've agreed to partner with and walk through this Christian sojourn and exile on earth. Membership declares that these are the people whom you want to hold accountable in a good way and whom you want to be held accountable to by in a good way. So can I worship God on my own? Yes, you can worship God on your own. I hope Monday through Saturday you worship God on your own. But your relationship with God will not go as far on your own as it will with the membership of a local church. Which, in closing, leads us to a third application. Join a local church and become a member. Declare to that body that you are a follower of Christ, that you want to use your gifts in the life of the church, and that you want others to use their gifts in your life for your walk with the Lord. So very practically, very practically, Next week, we have our Life at Lakeshore class. If you've been attending here for years and you're not a member, like, I hope you feel a little poke, a little push, that there's more for you to enjoy within the life of the local church. Join us in our Life at Lakeshore class next Sunday. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that covers so much for our lives. And I pray that as a church, we would walk in humility with you and with one another. We ask that you would help us to receive your word in faith, even though our culture may sometimes chide us or cause even reason to doubt or provide arguments against what you have given to us in your word. I pray that where your word contradicts or walks against the grain of culture, we would by faith follow your word. So please help us with that. Lord, thank you for gathering us together and the members of our church together. We pray for those, again, who are part of us but couldn't be with us this morning. And knowing that Gail has gone through this serious illness, we pray for you to continue to work in her body this morning. We thank you for Lonnie and the health and the improvement that you've brought into his life. 
many people with COVID and sickness this week, and we just pray that you would guard them and please bring healing into their lives. Now, please help us as we aim to go forward as a church body, to love one another well, to encourage one another, and to really carry out the responsibilities of church membership that we have here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.